I'm going to get right into it. We don't have a ton of time, but I'm going to get right into it. And all I'm going to do today is, in a sense, continue on with what Clayton's already been doing for three weeks, but he's actually been talking about this for a lot longer. And so the title, which is the same title that's been existing for the last three weeks, is Knowing God. And I think Clayton put it really well when he said, it would be arrogant for somebody to say they were an expert in this. It just would be. I do not... It, it would be hard for me to even say to you, to even grade out the degree to which I know God. It's an individual thing, and, and we treat it very tenderly in that sense. And so I've been, like all of you, I've been there just absorbing, receiving, thinking, processing, all that's been said, and there's so much that has been said over the past three weeks. So I, put, I wrote down three things. And these are some recent themes that struck me. And the first was something Clayton said, what does it mean to be a Christian? It's number one. And Clayton said it again today. God's doing something in me that I can't explain. And number three, an invasion of God in our hearts. And you actually saw some of that again during worship. And so my intention today is really to answer or to talk about those three things. That's my intention. And to do so, I'm gonna to have to, in a sense, provide a little bit of foundation. So it's gonna be a little bit of just reading the Bible. I've got some pictures. I hope that you find them appealing. Some people are visual learners, and that's great. But we're gonna, we're gonna read the Bible, take a look at some pictures. I'll make a few comments and hopefully do what I said, which is to answer these three questions or at least entertain them. Okay. So the first thing, what is a Christian? It's a pretty good question. And if you are one, I hope you have an answer for that. You should. But what is a Christian? See, there is a very interesting aspect of being a Christian is that you came from a context, and that context was you weren't a Christian. So now you are. So there's a difference. And to understand that difference, you have to understand, in a sense, who you are, what you are, what, how are you made up. And you know you have a physical body. Everybody, you wake up every day, you realize that. As the, the older you get, the more acutely aware you get of that. You have a soul, okay? And that's composed of your, your mind, your will, and, and your emotions. And when the Bible talks about the soul, it uses the term suke. And that actually is the basis by which we get the term psyche or psychology, which is really talking about the seat of your personality. And prior to being a Christian, this is largely who you were. You have a body, physical body, and you had an, your body was expressing something out of your soul, the seat of your personality. And then you got saved and something changed. And it wasn't as Ken loves to say, he's not here, I guess, today, but you know, Christianity is not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive. And that particular part that came alive for you is your spirit. Because in the fall of man, that spirit component of man died. It became inactive. For the most of your life that you lived, or maybe not most of your life, most of your life is probably a Christian, but prior to being a Christian, that spirit element of who you are was inactive. In a sense, it was actually subsumed by your soul, and you largely lived out of your soul but now you're Christian, and now the spirit part of you is now alive, and now you're learning a new way of living, and this is what it is to be a Christian. 
Now, what is your spirit? Your spirit, there are three main functions in your spirit. And they are your intuition, your conscience, and your fellowship. So these are very basic things, but you need to understand, to understand, to answer the three questions or the three statements I put up earlier, this is, you have to understand really what, who you are to, to make sense out of what's happening. So your intuition, and we talked a lot, Carrie talked about hearing God. And the intuition refers to the direct sense or feeling in the spirit. This is something that's totally apart, separate from your mind. Your mind can rationalize things. Your mind can think things. Your mind can come up with ideas by grinding on it, working it through, going through your process, and here's an answer. That's your mind. In the intuition, in the spirit, things just, it's like a direct sense, but it's apart from yourself. It's a download. Could be direction. Could be a picture. Could be something. But it's something apart from your mind and your rational thinking. That's your intuition. Your conscience, this one sounds pretty familiar. Typically, we think of it as, okay, I need to distinguish right or wrong. If it's right, my conscience is good. If it's wrong, my conscience is not so good. And I got that weird sort of feeling inside. And I could choose what to do with that. And I can bury it and bury it and bury it to the degree that eventually that voice starts to die. But the conscience is actually more important than right or wrong. It's actually what is of God and what is not of God. That's actually the more important function that the conscience actually enables you to participate. And the last is fellowship. And this is just about the contact and communion with God. So when you hear when the Bible says, you know, we worship in spirit and truth, now this makes sense. Because there's this fellowship aspect of your spirit that enables you. It's in the spirit. You can't perceive God who is spirit. You can't perceive God without your spirit. And this particular part, which is the fellowship function of your spirit, is the part that breeds worship. This is who you are. Okay? Now, how does man operate? Okay, it's been said, so you have the body, you have the soul, and you have the spirit. And there's an analogy that's been made to the temple. And you know the temple, the temple has the outer court, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. The Holy of Holies representing your spirit, really the presence of God. So this is you, again. But here's the thing. I said, you were, previously to being Christian, you weren't. And the whole spirit aspect of you was effectively inactive or dead. And you were very accustomed to working everything out of your soul, your mind, your will, and emotions. This is who you are. And the, prob the primary problem that occurs when people become Christian and actually learning how to be a Christian is this. We are living in a Western culture. And there was a man, just to illustrate the issue, Rene Descartes. He was a French philosopher and mathematician. He was born in 1596, so early 1600s he lived. And he actually provided, he's a philosopher, and he actually provided the foundation of Western notions of reason and science. And you know his statement, I think, therefore I am. And this act, that very statement embodies the soul, your soul, your mind, your rational thinking, that's the center of man. And that very statement, I think, what I think, what I rationalize, what I conceive, that becomes my center. Everything apart from that is actually not 
in, in your equation of being. And if you've lived and grown up in Western society and Western patterns of thinking, this is who we are. You wake up in your day. You think, what am I going to do? What pleases me? This is all based out of your soul, your mind and your rational thinking. That's your center. And prior to being the Christian, that's the only option that you had. And you were perfectly right to live that way. But once you became a Christian and the spirit part of you came alive, well, now we have a conflict. Now we have a conflict. Every way you knew, operated, thought, felt as being your center is now actually in contention to not be your center anymore. That now is the function of the spirit. See, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 to 20, it says this. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Now that I explained to you what, who you are, now this makes sense because it is talking about the soul being anchored through something that went through the veil and now anchored in the Holy of Holies, which represents his presence. And what does that mean? The spirit was designed to lead the soul, not vice versa. And if you've been listening to Clayton, one of the fantastic things he said was talking about the soul and your emotions. Your emotions will lie to you. They're the most inconsistent, unreliable, contrary way for you to actually see the real world. That's your soul. Your emotions will dictate what your mind thinks. Your mind will try and convince the emotions that what it's feeling isn't real. And that can't really be resolved, so what do you do? You will yourself to action through discipline. Your soul is as if it is on the waves of the sea, tossed back and forth. It has no center. If you live from your soul, that's what your life will look like. And Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 to 20 says, there is an anchor of your soul in the spirit. You enter the holy of holies by the blood. The new and living way made that gives you access to that anchoring position in the spirit is by the body of Christ. This is you. Without an anchor in the spirit, the soul is in control. And now I'm going to tell you something you already know. Your soul can be manipulated. Say, come on. Come on. You know I'm right, first of all. <laughs> Sales, advertising, media, social media, all designed to influence, persuade, and impact your soul. Maybe some would say lawyers would do that too. <laughs> Maybe. This is not art anymore. This is not 
I'm telling you the reality of the world that we lived in. If you haven't already suspected, for lack of a better word, your soul is a machine. For lack of a better word. This has now been elevated to science through rapid A-B testing. I can determine based on your background, based upon what you've experienced in your life, how do I push your buttons to effectively cause you to act, respond, think, and judge in a certain way? I can do that. People do this today. Every advertising media campaign, every amount of social media propaganda that you experience every day is designed for one reason, is to influence your soul. And they do. And they are. And they will. Because your soul is just responding as if you are a machine. The only thing you have is a spirit. The anchor. And I know you're saying, oh, come on. That's too far. So I had this opportunity with my son. He wanted to, he you know, graduated, got a job, wanted to get a car. So I got to go help him purchase a car. And if you bought a car, you know the deal. You know the process that you have to go through. You know the torture that you have to, before you actually get the keys of the car, right? And you know they're going to make you wait. I got to call my manager. Yep, 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 yep. And then you know you're going to get the pitch. I know that. They suspect I know that. Justin didn't really care because I was going to get the pitch. So I sit down with this person who was very good at what they did, by the way. There's a reason why she sat in that seat. Not because she loses, it's because she wins. And I sat there, and in my mind, I am ticking through seven points of persuasion that she just laid out for me. And I'm just amazed. I'm listening to this, and I'm actually absolutely amazed at seeing the particular points of persuasion that she's now using on me. And not only that, it's working, because what she's doing is she's manipulating my emotions, trying to engender favor to her, and ultimately disabling my mind. And I was actually amazed at what she was doing. I'm serious. I, was, I, I went home, Marie can tell you, I went home and I was just like raving about it. I can't believe what she did. <laughs> now, I still said no, but that's besides the point. The point is, if you didn't realize it, it's happening now. It's happening to you every day. If you live by your soul, you are being manipulated. Everything you hear by messaging is designed to push your buttons. And the only anchor you have is in the spirit. That's what being a Christian is like. Now, as I say, I, I have to lay some foundation. I have to move quickly. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> so this is, there's an issue of leadership here. As I said, the spirit was intended to lead your soul. Because the soul on itself can be manipulated, will lie to you. Trust me. If you're real with yourself, you'll realize all the instances of time that your emotions and your mind and the thoughts of what you thought the reality was were wrong. And if you really think about it, this, so body, soul, spirit, right? Three parts of you. Spirit is intended to be the soul. But, I mean, let's put some legs on this, right? So, you know, let's talk about your body and your soul.
your body, your physical body will get hungry. And if your body was in charge of your soul, your body would say, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat. It doesn't matter what social situation. It doesn't matter about who else is in the room. It doesn't matter who you're going to offend. Those are all soulic things, right? You just know, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat. But you're pretty much more advanced than that because you're like more than two years old now. And you say, well, you know, I, my body's telling me, man, I'm so starving, I, I'm going to eat. And your soul says, no, you're not. You know, because we have five different things, reasons why, of social sensibilities, why your body is not going to lead your soul. In the same way, you have to understand the difference between your soul and your spirit. So we're going to look at three things, three examples. And we're going to do it, you know, Jesus is our model, right? And Jesus was tempted. And it says also in the word that Jesus was tempted in every way you have been. And that's the basis why he can intercede for you. So we're going to look at the temptations of Jesus. We're going to read through these really quick. All I want to do is show you the reality of the concepts of your body, soul, and spirit, how this works, so you can start to recognize how you live, how you respond, what you think, what you feel, and hopefully how we need to adjust, because that's what it means to be a Christian. So the three temptations of Jesus, we all know that. They're, it's so rich in this aspects of sonship, uh, there's so much in there, but I'm looking at it for a very particular lens. Now that I gave you a framework of body, soul, spirit, the different parts of you and the soul, different parts or functions in the spirit, now let's look at how this works. The first temptation, Matthew 4, verse 2 to 4. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What's going on? What's the attack here? Obviously, his physical body, he's hungry. But his emotions are also directly being engaged as part of the attack. That's the temptation. And you know for yourself, there's a reason why the term hangry exists. <laughs> it's not just my body. My emotions are involved just as well. And now my body, Temper says, well, yeah, 40 days. Yeah, tough for you. Yeah, turn these stones to bread. A little provocative. And that's the attack. Jesus answered. This is a response. It's a soul. The body and the soul are being attacked. What is this wrong? Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word, which is rhema, that comes from the mouth of God. The intuition part of the Spirit enabled him to address the attack, which was directed to his body and his soul. Intuition, which is a direct sense in the Spirit in how to respond to the root of the attack. The root of the attack. Most everything you can try and attempt by force of will to deal with. Your strength in the soul will dictate how far that battle goes, but there is an end to that. Trust me. Second temptation. So we're going to move. Matthew 4, verse 5 to 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now, let me just stop there. I read this, and I, you know, I like negotiation. I like persuasion. And it just dawned on me. I mean, first of all, the, you have to appreciate the enemy, not in awe, but just have to appreciate the enemy. The enemy's really good at what he does. He's been doing this for a while. Right? So Jesus, in the first temptation, says... 
He responds to the root of it. He says, it is written. It is written. And the enemy, in the second temptation, says, okay, you know what the best words, the two most powerful words in negotiation? You said. So how does he start? You, you countered the first one, says, it is written, the Bible. Now it says, okay, you said the Bible. Now I say, boom, here's the Bible. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus' mind is now under attack because it's the word of God. It's the scripture. How does Jesus counter? Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. His conscience alerted Jesus through the Spirit, of what was of God and what was not of God. The enemy just quoted the Bible. I would like for us to quote the Bible. But now you can see that other than through the Spirit, that there is a Spirit behind those words, and Jesus, through the conscience, actually was able to discern that and know that's not of God because it's twisting the intent of the Scripture, and he responds with Scripture. There's a lot of talk, silly talk, I'll just leave it at that, about word and the spirit, one and the other. You can't even read the word without the spirit. You can't even interpret the word without the spirit. So why this word spirit? The third temptation, Matthew 4, verse 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship him. Now it's getting serious. Now we're talking about an attack on his will, his very affection. Where, what would it take to buy Jesus's affection? I mean, here he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. I'm thinking to myself, did it start there? Did he offer him something, anchor on a, such a, a much lower sort of reward? Jesus is not buying. I'm going to up the ante. I'm going to give you Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Oh, okay, uh, fine. The whole thing. All of it. Going to give you all. It's the force of will now. Is your will, can I buy your affection and now have your will in the soul, submit to me. And Jesus' answer says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's in the fellowship aspect of his spirit. That's how he countered. Three examples. Every part of his flesh was attacked. His body, mind, will, and emotions every part of the main functions of the spirits was engaged to deal with it in a different way. This is what you would call the normal Christian life. This is what it means to be a Christian. There is so much more that we can talk about the body, soul, and spirit. I don't have the time to do that. There's some really good books. Watchman Nee has a book called The Normal Christian Life. I highly recommend you read that to understand this is who you are. This is what you deal with. This is your life.
now. That's the foundation. Now we can quickly deal with some of the other questions. What is God doing amongst us now? Clayton even said this again. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. I'm just going to read a couple more verses. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. For when you did awesome things that we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. Isaiah 64 was written. This is a cry of man. The context of this was people in exile, the temple being destroyed, no protection. They were literally in an impoverished state. And now this cry comes up, says, Oh, would you rend the heavens and come down? God has heard the cry. Now the way God planned, intended, had nothing like what they were imagining. Too many people, well back then, but even today, people think of when God would come down, that the power shaking the mountains, miracles, that's what people normally associate with the power coming down. And God's answer was entirely different. You know, the word speaks of God as, you know, he talks about earthly fathers knowing how to give good gifts. And he being so far beyond had a gift. And the way he thought about this gift if I can put it in my thinking and language and my deviousness, this is the cry that people had. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It's like, oh, I've got the answer. I've got this gift, and it's going to blow their minds. I can't wait till they receive it because they think they're going to get something, and I'm going to deliver something that is so, like, contrary to what they're even imagining, it's going to blow them away like you would if you got the most amazing gift for any of your kids and you knew it was going to scramble their minds and blow them away and you couldn't wait for them to open it. That's exactly what God had in mind. See, Isaiah 64, 4 is quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, but in an entirely different context. It was restated, but as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. He's referring to this gift, the gift of the spirit that God's answer to man's cry is not this an external, in a sense, display of power that you can see, appreciate, be in awe of, walk away and forget. No. The answer to man's cry is in the deepest, most intimate part. And nobody understood what he had in mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 says, None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They had no clue. 
Colossians 1, 27, speaking out the mystery. The mystery that has been kept hidden, hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The gift that he had intended for you to open, for your mind to be blown, is not about God in his power in an external fashion. It's God in you. In you. Transforming. Bringing life. That was his gift. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 says, To know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is not something that you're going to understand from the perspective of your soul or your mind. It's from the spirit. Now you can understand what this is talking about if you understand who you are. The love that surpasses knowledge. You know, I, I've, I've said this, used this personal example, and now it's, I think it's easier for me to describe it. Now you can understand exactly what I was going through at the time. Because this is, I just had to explain, give you some context and put some legs on this thing. Because this is your, just normal Christian life. You know, I was, there a number of years ago, I was, I was much younger. Probably, well, certainly much less mature. I was married. So God uses some of that to expose all your issues. <laughs> but but I, I had a season where I felt God saying to you, you know, you need to deal with some of these issues. Just coming to me as I'm praying, it's like, you know, just by my intuition. It's like not something I'm rationalizing, like, you know, cost-benefit-wise, if I treat my wife better, maybe that'll be better for me. It's not, no, 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 not that. Just God just entering in, just outside of my rational center and saying, you know, you should, I think we need to deal with this. So, of course, I'm like, no, no. It's not, not a good time for me. Not, not a good time for me. My will's not on board. My emotions are thinking, yeah, no. And God, through my conscience now, is saying, no, this is really me. Right? Conscience is there to, to alert you what is of God and what is not of God. And it wouldn't leave me. And he kept saying, no, I want you to do this. So I'm like, you submit your will to the process. That's your soul. And so I did the best I knew to deal with that issue that he pointed out. So I did, oh, great. Another one. And I deal with that same process, dealing with the conscience, my sac submitting my will. And another one. And I'm thinking to myself, as my rational center is saying to me, because my emotions are screaming, says, I'm, I'm really tired. When I look back, I realized I'm under discipline. Discipline, oftentimes, as I understand it, my choices get taken away. And by the conscience in the spirit, he was funneling me to deal 
with the issues. Being under discipline, we know what that's like. And so I'm praying. I'm saying, God, I'm just really tired. My emotions are just done. And then, as I'm praying, the voice comes. Do you know how much I love you? Do you know how much I love you? And that has changed me. Because it's something in your heart. It's not knowledge. Talk about the love surpassing knowledge. This is not my rational center. But it's something that to hear those words out of the fellowship part of my spirit of his love for me under discipline that that's changed me. It's enabled me to trust him. That's what it has. Because this normal Christian life that you live will ultimately require to the degree that you're willing to put your life in his hands and say, I trust you to do to me what you will. Would you ever put your life in somebody's hands that you do not trust? No. And that's the work of God in your heart. The value of conviction of what he reveals through the Spirit will change you. And that is what he's doing right now. For what I hear, what has been reported, of what God is doing in people that they just can't explain, it's that. And my encouragement to you, with you, or to you, is submit yourself to that, whatever that looks like. It will change the very center of who you are and everything you understand. It's a relationship. It's out of the fellowship of the Spirit. That is what is as, that's what's at stake right now. Lastly, the invasion of God. In Luke chapter 11, verses 34 to 36, it says, the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, the bo your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. This is speaking about how you see. This is not about your physical sight, which is why, give it up to Clayton, New King, New King James Version is a much better translation. The NIV speaks about it as being plural, eyes, because it's thinking about your physical eyes. No, this has nothing to do about your physical eyes. How you see is in the spirit, through the spirit. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. And I put a picture up there just to illustrate it. That lamp, that's God. That's why he's the son of righteousness. And when that light shines, it's like a lamp shining into your heart. It's love, it's faith, it's hope. And what happens, 
this is now what the invasion of God looks like. It actually brings into you, in your very person, the entirety of your person, peace. Peace, you know, Philippians 4 verse 7 says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's what they're talking about. When faith, love, and hope as a light shines into your very heart, what the end result is, peace begins to envelope everything of who you are. Certainly your spirit, but now your soul. Your physical body even. Because you know what the peace of God is? It's very simple. It's order. It's order. Clayton spoke about you know, what heaven looks like. Because heaven is where the absolute peace of God exists. Why? Because the will of God is uncontested. Order. It's perfect order. Perfect. And that same form of order is actually available to you individually in your inner man in the same way. That the very order and the peace of God invades inside of you such that there is no, it is the will of God becomes uncontested. Your emotions would seek to lie, but they can't anymore because the peace of God so re reigns through your spirit that your very soul man is in submission and the will of God is uncontested. And that's the world. That's what the world is desperately searching for right now. And that was God's gift to you by his very attention, this gift that he wanted to unveil, that he kept hidden, and has now been made available to you just for being an everyday Christian. I don't have the scripture up there, but here's the point. Luke eleven thirty three, the previous verse. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. That's you. The degree to which you, by enabling your spirit to express dominion over the souls, that it cannot lie, it cannot contest, it cannot produce anything that is not of God, because your conscience, your intuition, and the very fellowship you have places your mind, your will, and emotions in full submission. The peace of God will now reign as a light that shines upon you. And that light is intended to be seen. Which is why the degree to which you carry that element of peace and assurance in your very person, people can't help but notice. It actually will impact the physical space that you're in. The words that you speak out of that level of peace and the uncontested will of God in your life as you speak words of life in the Spirit is going to change the atmosphere. That those who come in may see the light. That's what's happening. The invasion of God that we so desperately desire to just say, God, do your thing, is not through mediators. Please understand. It's not through mediators. For God, who is desired to place, giving you direct access to everything that I just spoke about, 
You don't need a mediator because Jesus already has mediated on your behalf. By your blood, you enter in. By He has made a new and living way to access the Holy of Holies as an anchor of your soul by Christ's body. All done. Finished. Complete. So that you can just be who you were meant to be. A Christian.